Hello and welcome to the Ashurst Corporate Crime and Investigations podcast series, where we explore a range of aspects of investigations uh, and bring to you some of the insights that we've gained from carrying out investigations for our clients across a wide range of areas. I'm Ruby Hamid, I co-lead Ashurst's global corporate crime team and we are looking today at uh, investigations triggers for next year. What are we going to be talking about when we meet this time next year to look back on 2023? And we have a, a, a fantastic panel here today to have that discussion with you. Um, I've got with me today Richard Bullmore, who's a partner in our restructuring and insolvency practice. He's going to be talking to us about uh, the economic downturn and the impact on investigations there. Alexander Dimitrenko, who's our corporate crime and investigations lead in Asia. Alexander's a US qualified lawyer who specializes in sanctions, amongst other areas. I've got Sophie Law with us, who is an investigations and litigation specialist in London, and she's going to talk to us about the increasing uh, rise of human rights and supply chain um, in investigations. And finally, Olivier Dorgan, who leads our practice uh, in Paris and is going to talk to us about whistleblowing, um, which for those of you who um, are regular podcast listeners will know is a topic which comes up pretty frequently um, in the investigation space. So some really interesting things to look forward to um, in this session. I'm going to kick off now by asking uh, Richard, um, tell us a little bit about what the, the biggest macroeconomic trend um, that we're all facing at the moment, economic risk and recession. How's that finding its way into investigations? Thanks, Ruby. Um well, we're, we're all being told to expect the UK's longest ever recession, according to the Bank of England, and increased distress for companies. Um, and we all know, uh, I think, and are familiar with the, the range of economic headwinds that are causing that distress, interest rates, consumer confidence, changes in consumer behaviour, energy prices and labour shortages, as well as, well as many others. Um, and there are very few industries or sectors that really are untouched by those headwinds. Um, and with increased distress comes the prospect of, of corporate failure and really difficult decisions for directors. And as to how that can play out um, in leading to investigations, well, the first angle is that following an insolvency, there are investigations carried out by an insolvency practitioner in the UK, an administrator or liquidator, interrogating how directors complied with their duties, how they considered and satisfied those obligations to creditors and whether they were in, engaged in wrongful trading or other civil offences under the Insolvency Act. And we've also seen as well intense pressure on regulators, public bodies, even government to investigate failures and to scrutinise those involved. And we're thinking here of, of the large corporate failures in BHS, Carillion and Thomas Cook. Now, the reality is that distress situations don't, are, are not always about failures by directors and boards. And sometimes there's not much that the, the board could have done differently. But there is increasing pressure on regulators and government to be interrogating um, them and, and uh, on why the companies failed and, and finding um, the reasons for, for that failure. And as to the impact on, on the individuals involved, well, investigation by an, an insolvency practitioner gives rise to the risk that actually becomes a prelude to litigation with possible personal liabilities for directors and in extreme cases, 
disqualification or even criminal liability, although that that tends to be case to be limited to cases of fraud. Um, but there is obviously with the wider range of regulatory and government led investigation um, that the, um, the the possibility and potential for significant reputational impact. They um, those regulatory investigations may directly lead to to sanction against the the individuals. But the um, the, the the kind of televised Treasury or Bay Select committees, even if they don't lead to actual direct um, sanction against individuals, can be incredibly stressful for those involved. And they are televised and of the highest profile. Um, one one trend that we're seeing is is a combination of one or more types of investigation, um, particularly in larger corporate failures. Uh, and particularly in regulated businesses where there are competing or overlapping sources of duties, um, directors' duties and decision-making can be much trickier to navigate and deciding what's in the best interests of stakeholders and creditors there will also need to take, in count, um, take into account the attitude prospect of action um, uh, by, by a regulator. You know, is it possible, for example, that the regulator may impose a fine or in an extreme scenario actually impose a requirement on the firm? And, it, it, and is that clear or is, in fact, is it in fact um, ambiguous and therefore does, is a director faced with the really difficult task of working out um, whether he should follow his, um, uh, his obvious duties to, to all creditors or actually um, look to the possibility um, that some um, creditors or the interests of the regulator might have to um, to kind of take front stage in, in his decision making. Um, as to how we we can um, uh, reduce the risk and, how, and what companies and directors ought to be thinking about, well, it's, it's all the usual um, best practice principles um, for complying with directors' duties generally. So we, we, we would encourage directors to kind of really engage and form themselves or um, about as, as fully as possible all, all the relevant facts, ask the right questions, whether there is a reasonable prospect of avoiding an insolvency, pay close attention to cash flow uh, and the signs of distress, including arming themselves with the information necessary to do that, um, holding frequent board minutes, having detailed minutes and records as soon as that really there's the earliest indication of distress, and, and also to obtain the right legal and financial advice, which in itself, just taking that is a critical mitigant and, and really to do that sooner rather than later. And really, that's that's key um, in um, in how companies and directors approach these sorts of situations. Richard, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. And um, a really interesting theme you're picking up there, which we've uh, talked about in other podcasts, this um, increasing focus on the role of the individual and individual conduct um, here in the insolvency space. It's it's directors who are in the spotlight. Um, thank you very much. Um, Alexander, I'm going to move on to, to talk to you about one of the other big macroeconomic trends that, that we're dealing with at the moment, which is itself giving rise to investigations, and, and that's financial sanctions. Um, energy prices um, and the, the, the war in Russia are, are being talked about as, as key triggers for that global financial uncertainty Richard's been, um, been discussing. Uh, how is this playing out for our clients in the investigation space? Thank you, Rui. Indeed, uh, financial sanctions 
have seen phenomenal expansion in the last you know, year in response to Russia's war in Ukraine. You know, we are now probably at a place where law and regulations have largely settled and, uh, you know, licenses that have been issued to allow winding down have also expired. So it's what you may call the enforcement time. And enforcement time means there will be investigations. And we know that now OFAC has been able to recoup a lot of uh, staffing needs that appeared after and uh, during um, you know, Trump administration when people have left OFAC now. Uh, I understand there's um, those uh, spots have been filled and people are keen to start um, enforcing. And uh, enforcement uh, in the sanctions sphere, Ruby, would be also important to address the criticism that has been raised in this uh, area because a lot of people have been saying, well, you know, sanctions have been issued and implemented, and, you know, but, but are they taking any effect vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia its ability to, uh, you know, launch the war in Ukraine? So the enforcement will need to come in. And it's uh, on the way. We know it's a, it's, a, it's a priority for the U.S., particularly authorities, to show sanctions will and do bite. Um, to th think about that in a sense, um, you know, enforcement in the sanctions sphere probably is not dissimilar to other areas uh, where regulatory um, investigations do take time. In my one of my last cases, it was almost three years before it became public and settled. So. We may not hear about them, but we do know that there are already sanctions that are ongoing and uh, investigations that are ongoing and enforcement that is being pending. Uh, Ruby, to your question, I think from clients' perspective, it's particularly what OFAC would call low-hanging fruit. It's the financial industry and the logistics industry that may be particularly exposed. So to them, I think we, we would always say, and we see them being as both the enforcers and enforcees of sanctions. And I think we'll see that uh, continuously as a trend uh, going forward. A great deal of risk here, Alexander. One of those risks being the ever-changing nature of the sanctions and the risk that companies are caught between sanctions as, as um, financial measures and, and countermeasures by other jurisdictions. Do, do you want to say something about how that might impact our clients? Yes, Ruby, you're, you're definitely, um, you know, raising a critical point and critical concerns that clients have been facing, particularly in jurisdictions uh, like Russia, like China, um, where there are now countermeasures and counter sanctions regimes uh, that basically make compliance with international foreign sanctions domestically a very difficult proposition. Um, for Russia, uh, what clients are seeing now, it's in, you know it's a, it's difficult to exiting uh, Russia or you know selling the assets and then moving the money out of Russia if they want to. Um, for China, obviously, uh, it's it continuously this compliance with foreign sanctions that may lead to um you know negative consequences and there are you know myriad of them one of them may be losing licenses and operating in china and or hong kong and i think we but that's where clients have asked us to help them with some some guidebooks and rule books as to what to do uh, in situations where you do face that clear conflict of, of uh, sanctions between two different jurisdictions but we you know Clients don't come to us uh, just because they have concerns. They want to mitigate those concerns, right, Ruby? Uh, you, you've, you know, that, that's a key area 
um, they don't want to be necessarily facing mitigations. So when we think about mitigation, you know, we want to kind of start with risk assessment. We want to ensure that clients uh, have robust compliance programs, policies, procedures in place, that those compliance procedures are ongoing, uh, and not just that at you know time when you know clients are uh, onboarding on their third parties. And ultimately, and particularly for financial industry, we do see that contractual protections and requirements of having reps and warranties, focusing on sanctions, are put in place and 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 are given by the counterparties, you know, ensuring that the you know, counterparty isn't sanctioned and none of their owners or affiliates are, that they're not doing business with sanctioned companies or countries, that transactions, you know, proceeds are not going to end up in any, for the, any benefit of sanctioned parties. And also, ultimately, that you're not dealing with someone who is under sanctions instigation. So a lot of that, uh, you know, reps and warranties now are in a way to protect yourself against potential exposure. But ultimately, Ruby, and I'll finish with this, is that um, for many sanctions regimes, it's a strict liability uh, regime. So you may not necessarily be able to defend yourself with all of these mitigation risks, but you may uh, really be able to mitigate risks and, and bring down the measures that may otherwise be quite drastic. Thank you. Okay, really good advice, Alexander. Thank you. Sophie, I'm going to bring you in to ask you about human rights as one of the trends that we see taking hold in 2023 but do you want to mention the sanctions tracker that you've been um so instrumental in putting together i, I think that might be pick up on one of the the sort of useful mitigation steps that that alexander's mentioned yeah absolutely um so um as as alexander was saying it's been a historic year in terms of sanction, and it was hard even for sanctions practitioners to keep track of the ever-changing um, sort of um, new requirements that were, were being placed on, on companies in particular at the beginning of the invasion back in February, March, April time. So um, we have a, um, a, a tracker of Russian sanctions, and it covers four major jurisdictions, so the UK, the EU... Australia and Japan that, that we keep updated very regularly with help from colleagues across the globe and um, gives a very high level summary of the developments um, and that can just be found on, on the ASHA's website. That's great. Thanks, Sophie. Um, tell us a little bit about human rights as, as a theme. Again, clearly one of those big macroeconomic trends we're hearing so much about. Um, how's it finding its way into the investigations agenda yeah absolutely so i think um human rights and modern slavery in particular in the context of corporate supply chains is something that's um been under increasing scrutiny um recently and that's only going to increase i think over the course of the next year i think one of the main sources of that scrutiny is changes in in legislation um so modern slavery is is nothing new has had a modern slavery act since 2015 but it does only require businesses to publish statements on the steps that they're taking to prevent modern slavery in their operations and it it doesn't really have any powers or any teeth in terms of regulators to um come after companies if they are, are not taking out adequate steps um the uk is committed to um a new um, modern slavery act which does um increase some of the obligations on companies in, in this area for example um increasing civil penalties for non-compliance but it's interesting when you look at um some other jurisdictions and particularly in europe there's an, a number of um, new pieces of legislation that are, are going a lot further than that so 
for example, France, Germany, the Netherlands and, and the EU as well, are all introducing or have introduced legislation that requires companies to um, do a lot more to minimise human rights related and environmental risks along their supply chains. So in particular, the, the European Commission has, has published a, a draft of its corporate due diligence directive, and that imposes mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence requirements across member states, not only to say what um, they are doing to reduce um, those risks in their supply chain, but also to prevent and, and remedy those adverse human rights and environmental risks. And I think the second reason as to why um, human rights, in particular modern slavery, is coming under increased scrutiny is simply that it's being talked about more. It's very much on politicians and policymakers' agendas. ESG is a sort of buzzword that we've been talking about for, for a number of years, but the focus has been mainly on the on the E, the environmental, um, in particular climate change. And I think um, the, the increased prominence of, of human rights and, and modern slavery is, is showing that people are paying much more attention now to the, to the S of, of ESG. And businesses are facing pressures from um, not just from regulators and governments, but also from investors and shareholders and even from employees and, and civil society to be seen to be doing the, the right thing in, in, in this area. That's a really fascinating trend um, and, and absolutely tapping into the zeitgeist at the moment. Um, wh what sort of thing can our clients do to prevent or to mitigate the risk of investigations arising from human rights and from their supply chains? I think the, the first thing that's really key is to make sure you understand um, what legislative requirements you have, um, where are you operating, um, what of these pieces of legislation do you, do you need to comply with, and, and coming back to the themes that Alexander and Richard have mentioned already, companies may well be operating in a number of jurisdictions where the obligations in this area are not harmonised. So that may well be, be complex in itself, but, but get, a, get a good handle on what your obligations are. And I think the second most important thing is to really due diligence your supply chain, carry out robust risk assessments. Are you operating in an industry or a jurisdiction which is high risk? Um, know your suppliers, due diligence, research, visit them. Um, and um, understand um, where your risks are and so you can identify ways to, to mitigate those risks. And I think the, the final thing, again, Alexander's touched on this, is to have some really robust policies and procedures in place to, to make sure that everyone across your business understands their obligations and complies with them in this area. Absolutely. Um, great advice, Sophie. Um, Olivier, I'm going to ask you a bit about uh, about whistleblowing, which is a, a theme that um, regular listeners to this podcast will have heard us um, touch on in a range of different ways. Um, an uptick in whistleblowing, I think we'll all agree, but some really crucial changes happening to legislation in Europe. Do, do you want to pick up on those for us? Of course. Thanks, Ruby. Um, as, 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 you, as you may recall, uh, the European Union adopted in 2019 a directive to harmonize the protections of whistleblowers throughout Europe. Um, because it was adopted in 2019, it was due to be fully implemented by all member states by 2021. But because of COVID, notably, um, there's been some significant delays in the implementation uh, by member states. Um, France. Uh, was at the forefront um, of uh, whistleblowers protection 
as early as 2016, it adopted as part of its anti-corruption legislation, um, a fair, fairly strong uh, whistleblowers protection regime, um, and it was one of the architects of the European directive. Uh, so not surprisingly, France was uh, one of the first European countries uh, to fully transpose the European directive. Um, and the, uh, um, the, the the transposition is still undergoing uh, some some progress um, in, in, in various European countries. So we're hopefully going to see a full implementation of the directive by 2023. In terms of the novelty that have been um, brought by this um, a new uh, whistleblowers protection regime at the European level, uh, there are two um, uh, areas uh, which are noteworthy, I believe. The first relates to um, the uh, um, leveling of the various uh, alerts channels. Um, the European Union uh, noticed that some of the internal alert systems that companies were implementing were not as efficient as they should be. So they've leveled uh, the internal and the external uh, channels. Uh, so accordingly now, a whistleblower can decide to either opt for the internal channel or go directly to a regulator and benefit from the protection uh, of the whistleblower status. So this is something that you can understand from a policy standpoint, but it's causing a lot of headaches to companies, um, most notably because some companies have spent significant time efforts and invested a lot in the internal channels over the last few years. Um, and um, it's been a great deal of efforts um, and it's now um, difficult because they are facing direct competition from the external channel. And as we all know, uh, it's so much easier for a company to manage um, a potential alert when it's uh, been handled first internally before having uh, the authorities uh, kicking in. Um, and now that there's a perfect leveling of the two um, uh, channels, uh, then um, it's going to be very uh, difficult for companies, even though there are ways to do so, uh, to keep the internal channel attractive. And before, um, before I forget, um, the other um, areas which is very important in the directive is the fact that um, the, um, there's a creation of a, a whistleblower facilitator status as well, which is a, a, a novelty. Uh, and it's been created to, to uh, give protection to unions, for instance, internally, or to um, all sorts of individuals that may want to help the whistleblower as part of the process. The reason uh, behind that change is the fact that the um, commission also noticed that um, whistleblowers can sometimes be very isolated. So by extending the protection status of whistleblowers to uh, unions or um, individuals that have assisted the whistleblowers as part of the whistleblowing, uh, then the commission is also hoping that there will be more alerts being raised and as a result that there will be more um, uh, investigation being conducted. So a lot to uh, a lot on the horizon um, in in Europe. Olivier, can I ask what what the impact of that is on companies who, for example, are not headquartered in Europe but which have offices or operations or, or staff there? Are they also impacted? There are. It's company above, uh, irrespective of the legal form, company that are operating uh, through, for instance, a subsidiary in Europe. To the extent the subsidiary um, has 50 employees or more, it has to set up its own internal system uh, that meets the requirements of the European directive. And there's been some interesting discussion for groups which are 
headquartered in one member state but have uh, affiliates um, or subsidiaries uh, throughout Europe. Um, above above which threshold do these subsidiaries or affiliates need to have their own internal systems, or uh, can they benefit from a um, can they benefit from uh, the um, the groups the group whistleblowing system? Um, the Commission has a very strict point of view, which is to the extent you are above 50 employees, but below 250, uh, you have the ability to benefit from the group system. If your subsidiary or affiliate has more than 250 employees, then you need to have your own internal um, uh, whistleblowing system. Okay, so really broad application um, to, to many of those who will be listening to this podcast. Um, Alexander, yeah, yeah, Ruby, actually, and, and, and Olivia, this is a great question because uh, for companies that are, you know, sitting in Asia, uh, you know, many of companies have operations in Europe and, and France and have helped companies to set up those whistleblowing hotlines globally. And it does um, impact how those companies will create the kind of global structure, because if we see in different regulatory requirements, expectations from from those uh, companies that may apply you know domestically in, in France or Europe vis-a-vis the global operations that may create a disconnect because you know companies may not be ready uh, to follow French law globally and I think that's that trend we will see and that experience that maybe European law will lead us uh, will, will be interesting to see how that will be whether that will resonate for global companies elsewhere or that will remain to be European only. Yeah, I think there's much to watch um, in the whistleblowing space, and I'm sure we'll come back to it um, in future podcasts. Um, I'm going to draw this conversation to a close. Thank you very much to uh, Alexander, to Olivier, to Sophie and to Richard for joining today. Uh, If any of our listeners want to get in touch with us, then you'll find our details on the Ashurst website. Uh, And if you'd like to learn more, then look out for the next podcast in this series. Uh, If you don't want to miss future episodes, do subscribe now on uh, your favourite podcast platform. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, leave us a review or a rating and let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. Until then, thank you for listening.